Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber Internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or integrityfirstinsuranceservices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. Welcome to Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Salzberg. We're going to be talking with four guests today about critical race theory and why it's such a volatile topic at this time. The four guests are Hardy Murphy, who's a clinical professor in the IUPUI School of Education. He is a former superintendent of schools in Evanston, Illinois. Constant Elo is joining us. She's an associate professor in the Department of Higher Education, School of Behavioral and Applied Sciences at Azusa Pacific University. Cleveland Hayes is associate dean of academic affairs at the IUPUI School of Education. And Kevin Brown is the Richard S. Melvin Professor of Law at IU's Maurer School of Law. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. You can send us questions there. You can also send us your questions on email, news at indianapublicmedia.org. Very excited about the show today. Um, I think we have four guests who are, they're actually spread out quite a bit around the country right now. Uh, Dr. Hayes is in uh, Seattle and uh, Constance Elo is in California. Hardy Murphy's in Chicago. Kevin Brown's on the road. We've just got people all over the place. But this is a really important topic. I think um, there's, as we said in the preview of the show, uh, the Reuters survey showed there's a lot of confusion about what critical race theory is. It's become quite a political hot button. So we hope to answer some questions and uh, sort of bust some myths here today about this topic. So I want to start with Dr. Cleveland Hayes um, to talk about just what is critical race theory and how, you know, how has it uh, burst onto the scene like this? Dr. Hayes? Good. good. Well, I know it's afternoon on the East Coast, but good morning from uh, from the Pacific Northwest. So uh, as the host has stated, I'm, I'm Cleveland Hayes. I'm faculty in the School of Education uh, at IUPUI. And so my introduction to critical race step happened when I was a graduate student at the University of Utah. And it would, and, and my introduction to it came around looking at ways and what stuck out for me. And I think depending upon who you ask, we'll, we'll have a different definition. Um, but for me, there's so value around this is as, as, as a classroom teacher is valuing the experiential knowledge, which is one of the tenets um, of, of critical race theory that allows students for me as I'm planning lessons and, and teaching and preparing pre-service teachers, how do you take that knowledge and plan lessons to build more inclusive communities and, and create student success, um, et cetera. And so one of the things that is not that I think is being created in the media is this divisive tool to make white people feel bad. And I think that's a self-identified marker that they have put on themselves um, um, to do that. And as always, I was telling my CRT course um, on Tuesdays that there's always got to be a bad guy, that a bad person that that the United States has to have in, in order to get all bent out of shape about something. And right now, unfortunately, it's critical race theory. Pretty Murphy, um, same question to you. Um, yeah, thanks for asking me to be here. Um, so for me, it's um, it's a way to make sure that um, by questioning the past, we understand its impact upon the present. And by doing that, we're able 
to look at what the influence of racism might be on the future that we create. And, you know, talking about it from the standpoint of public schools, uh, you know, we say um, all the time, it's uh, a well-worn phrase that uh, we create the future through our children, and one child at a time is how that future is created. So in the public school system, for me, it seems that if uh, children understand the impact of racism upon our present, and they do understand that we all have a responsibility for making sure that it doesn't, in fact, create the future, then we're able to remake this system so it is uh, a much more equitable experience for everyone and where skin color doesn't make a difference. The troubling aspect of it that I think people grapple with are, you know, there was a book once that was written that said that all I know I learned in kindergarten. Well, you know, you go into any kindergarten classroom, you hear children talk about what is fair and what isn't, and they define their world that way. And for them to then define their world that some of their classmates live in a world that's not fair to them because of the color of their skin, it causes them to have to reflect upon who they are. And enabling those students to accept that without becoming desensitized to the fact that some people have a harder go of it because of their skin color is really the challenge that we have in grappling with critical race theory. All right, I want to bring Constance Elo in. Dr. Elo, you teach about your, your work centers on um, culture and business of post-secondary education and how the infrastructures affect minor, minority communities. Um, critical race theory is, uh, I, would, I would assume, is a big issue, not just in the public schools, but also on university campuses. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say so. But I, I just want to make sure, um, was there a question you wanted me to respond to or just kind of talk about the landscape? Yeah, and yeah you can you can talk about you. You can follow up with just, you know, to you, what what does it what does it mean? How would you define it? And then we can talk about higher education a bit. Yeah, I mean, um, this has sort of been echoed by my co-panelists, but um, my understanding of critical race theory um is a legal framework to really help people understand the ways in which racism is in fact embedded in a myriad of social institutions and legal institutions um, and making sure that that's accurately centered um, in how we understand um, outcomes for people of all different walks of life. Um, the consideration I have when I think about CRT and this huge debate is really to what extent it is actually being taught um, in post-secondary education and also in spaces of K-12 um, education. Uh, and my sense is that um, the ways in which the hysteria has been I guess, created around CRT is maybe not necessarily congruent with how pervasive it is in K-12 and higher education spaces. Um, so my hope is that, um, I guess, with attention um, to this topic that clearly we're certainly in this moment, um, we start to sort of drill down and ask, you know, with this more clear understanding of what CRT is, um, critical race theory, um, to what extent is it actually even appearing um, in the social institution that is education across the P through 20 pipeline? And my sense is that um, it's far less ingrained in any curriculum or set of courses um, than what is actually consistent with what's sort of happening um, in and out of the public imaginary. But um, I certainly see... Um, echoes of this debate very much happening in post-secondary education and people being concerned with what's being taught, particularly at um, public institutions. Um, but again, um, I think what is most important is for us to have clarity about what's happening and any time that the rhetoric sort of supersedes um, what is actually happening in particular spaces, I think there's a lot of danger 
um, not only for um, misinformation and confusion, um, but really just for people to not really know what's going on. Yeah, I hope we get into that um, quite a bit more during this program today about, you know, what's actually happening versus what's sort of, you know, in the media and what's in the, the political realm that sort of suggests what's happening. Kevin Brown, you've been writing about this. Uh, you've written about this since, yeah. well, at least uh, one, of, yeah. uh, one, one of the things you wrote was in 2013 about the history and conceptual elements of critical race theory. So this has been around for quite, quite a while. Um, your, you know, your history with this topic and, and then you can talk a little bit about why it's, why it's so hot right now. Okay, well, let me, I guess what it allows me to do is sort of historicize this discussion a little more. Uh, I was at the original critical race theory workshops in Madison, Wisconsin in 1989, and very much uh, a proponent of it, and it has, has shaped a lot of the research I've done since the 1980s uh, in law. So, so let me try to historicize this a little bit. Uh, we all know that during the period of segregation, Race was used to separate and discriminate against people of color, but particularly black people of color. And, and I do want to say this too as an intro. Separate from critical race theory, what grew out of it was a separate movement, black grit or Latino criticism. Um, so critical race theory focused more on race. Black grit then focused more on the issues of Latinx communities. But once again, going back to this, we just started from a society where race was being used to discriminate against people of color, particularly black people. And then we go through the desegregation era and the rise of the concept of colorblindness. And the assumption there was if we move beyond race, if we just treated everyone as individuals, if we were colorblind, if we transcended considerations of race, then we would end up in an equal world. And that's not what happened. Uh, by the time we get to the late 80s, it's very clear that the socioeconomic racial disparity in things like income, welfare, uh, unemployment, poverty rates, we're really not moving very much at all. And it really required us to sort of rethink how much equalization you can actually produce through colorblindness. And we realized that there were a number of real shortcomings of colorblindness and thinking of law in those terms that would prohibit us from ever moving to racial equality. Uh, first off, if you really are colorblind, if you really think race should not matter at all, and, and once again, I'm not talking about individuals to individuals, but I'm talking about in the political, uh, in the legal arena. If you really think race should matter at all, then it means the things that black people are complaining about, which is this history of discrimination, simply ceases to exist. Because if you're not talking about race and the impact of race on different groups, then you're not going to talk about the history of discrimination. We also realize that if you're not talking about the history of discrimination and that accumulated history that has helped to produce the current racial and ethnic disparities that we see, then people start to assume that the problem or the source of the problem of the current racial and ethnic disparities are within black people themselves, as opposed to the history of racial discrimination that our society has suffered. Um, the third thing we also realized was that within this sort of thinking about individuals as individuals, we had normalized and institutionalized the perspective, view, and experience of whites. Therefore, while on the one hand this appeared to be racially neutral, on the other hand, what it really did was it institutionalized the culture of whites. And it was a culture that had been created during a period of time where people of color had been excluded. Um, so the, the result of that... I think we just, I think we just lost... Uh... Professor Brown. So he is on the road. And so I know his connection was a little, little difficult. But I want to follow up on something he was talking about. And uh, we actually got a question about it. And so I think I'm going to direct, well, I'll direct this to first to, to Dr. Hayes and, and uh, then Dr. Murphy, Dr. Elo, you can respond too. It was an email question that sound that 
that goes along with what he was talking about with the uh, sort of institutionalized uh, views of the culture. It, the question from one of our listeners is, how does teaching a narrow white perspective of history and other school subjects affect minority students' educational opportunities? Dr. Hayes? So it goes, uh, for me, I think it goes back to recognizing the lived experience, the experiential knowledge that students bring. And so I was just on an interview earlier with the Indy Star, and I brought this up. And so basically, you know, you hear these conversations around, well, just be an American. We, why just can't we just be an American? And first, and, and so when you problematize that, well, first of all, who gets to be an American? And what does that mean? And what does that look like? And so I say, okay, I'm an American. But my experiences as a black man in America may be different from yours, and so you're telling me that they're not they're, that that it's not valued because it goes against because it's not this white norm, um, individualistic, pull yourself up by, by your bootstraps kind of a thing. That this when you look at communities of color historically, that that may not necessarily be the way that those communities. Uh, a look in, and you, and then you still have all these conversations around. Well, we need to get to re reconciliation, and it's divisive, and it's here, and it's and we need to heal. But how can you heal when you can't even admit to the atrocities that happened in this country long before 1776? And with any relationship that you have with somebody, when you do something that you shouldn't have done, whatever that is, you have to first of all before you can when you begin to move to healing and reconciliation. You have to admit that you've done it. And so, and I don't understand what is this, why is this so, people are so resistant to just recognizing that, okay, well, we did this and this is not about you. I'm not talking about you as an individual. And as I stated earlier, when you put that, well, I'm not a racist label, nobody's called you a racist. Nobody's telling you to be feel guilty about being white. Those are the things that you put on yourself. And let that go. That's, and I was, and again, I was telling my, the, the white students in my CRT class the other day, that's self-imposed. That's a waste of energy. If we're really about making school spaces better for children, then you have to recognize that those children are coming with a different set of experiences, a different set of knowledge, um, especially if they have had long generations of oral history from their parents and from their grandparents. From the American South, for example, and their experiences in the American South are going to be completely different. That is that's, that's missed from the American history textbooks. You know, you know, actually talking to people who lived and survived Jim Crow uh, America are going to have a different experience than reading about it, reading about it in a textbook because it is it is minimized um, at best. So it has a huge. So you basically telling these students of color, these minoritized students, that their experiences, the experiences of their children, the experiences of their grandparents, the experience of their parents, the experience of their grandparents' experience didn't matter because we're still going back to George Washington cutting down the, the, the cherry tree. And I'm not minimizing that experience at, at, at all, but there are other experiences that, we, that should be included in this America cur curriculum that everybody wants to uh, fall, fall to. I think uh, just to follow up on that, I think that they're there. Uh, you know, I, I can think back to my education and, you know, we we learned in, in a, my small school in Indiana very little about uh, you know, we, we had a very narrow perspective, as the questioner said. So I, I guess I would follow up and, and just say you know, some of the things that we've been talking about recently, the 1619 project of of um, the New York Times was not something that people talk about in schools. Uh, what happened in Tulsa a hundred years ago um, wasn't something that's really talked about in schools. I, I see Hardy Murphy's uh, unmuted and ready to talk about that. You can you can talk about those things, or you can just answer the the question that first came up about the perspective and and what it does to students of color. Well, Tulsa is important, and as a relative of. Uh, uh, Ali Beatrice Murphy Smitherman, who was the wife of A.J. Smitherman, known as Tulsa Star and sounded the alarm at uh, which the ride unfolded. I actually am very, very pleased with the fact that America has finally come to grapple with this. 
But Dr. Hayes, who is my colleague, did mention George Washington and the cherry tree. And I think one of the things that's happening now is that America is in the middle of an identity crisis as far as its self-concept and self-esteem. And it starts with the icons of the past. So, you know, we teach that George Washington was this gallant, uh, steely-eyed, uh, uh, resident uh, bulwark of strength and uh, morality from which our country has evolved. But George Washington had slaves. And we talk of Abraham Lincoln in the same terms. And he, too, felt that African-Americans were inferior and, in fact, was one of the people, the progenitors of an idea to repatriate Blacks back to Africa, and the country of Liberia has never recovered from that initiative. They have tribal warfare that exists today from those movements. But when you look at how this is taught and you get into the public schools, people forget that during that time there were abolitionists and slavery was a question all the way from George Washington through the revolution up through Abraham Lincoln and Thomas Jefferson. So rather than teach that they were morally flawed, we teach them as these impeccable heroes. That is problematic because in teaching that they were imperfect, it means that America has to grapple with its own assessment of who it was, who it is, and what it can be. I was looking at the Indiana State Standards, and when I Googled up the Civil Rights Movement, there were three references did the same thing with uh, the Civil War and Reconstruction, and there were three references. And then I Googled up the age of imperialism, and I realized that you cannot teach those without teaching what, in fact, happened in America that actually created an achievement gap. So when you see the research today that shows that if an African-American student has an African-American teacher, especially a male, they're more likely to finish high school. If they have more than one teacher, they're more likely to go to college. And you ask yourself, why don't they have more teachers? And you go back to the civil rights movement and desegregation, when those heroes were really after equal funds, equal resources. And you know that what happened then was that African-American teachers found themselves having to be mailmen and having to find other employment while the preservation of an intact white teacher corps who then had to teach African-American students in the schools, you have to say to yourself, that was a consequence. The question is whether or not it was unintended. And that is what it means to interrogate through critical race theory. And as you roll forward today and you see where we are with the idea that special education is actually the first steps towards incarceration, because many people who are in the penal institutions of the country have been referred to special education and placed. And then you see that African-American teachers refer students for special education less frequently, significantly so, than white teachers. Now you tie a bow around the ribbon of why critical race theory is necessary because it means that superintendents and teachers have to manage that decision-making tree within their districts. So for me, what we're talking about here is a way to deconstruct all of this and put it all together again. So as I said when I started, we have a generation of students who exit the public schools with a different idea of what it means to make sure that they are working towards equality and the life experiences of their classmates. If we don't address it, then what the system has done is sent out another generation of students to perpetuate it. And we know that the disparate outcomes that African-American students experience in schools is just not of their own making. People don't go to school to fail. Working backwards, infants aren't born to die. Mothers aren't intending for their children to be the victims of miscarriages. All of this comes from a governmental structure and life experiences that penalizes people because of the color of their skin. All right. If I can, add one, if I can add one quick thing to that. So I'm, I'm the grandson of Olivia Smith and Cornell Brown, both teachers in Mississippi doing segregation. And Dr. Murphy brought triggered something in me when he when he as he was going through his um his his, his talk there is 
I studied exemplary red black teachers, and this is huge, rich, rich history of, and my father, who's also a teacher, my mother's also a teacher, talked about when they desegregated schools in the South, how many of many of those black teachers, many of those black superintendents lost their jobs. And we lost that rich history, those rich conversations, those investments in communities that those black teachers had that that lost after after desegregation. And many of those black schools were closed. Um, when they when they de- when they desegregated schools, and I grew up in the in the, in the American South, so so you can so when we so when when you start looking at critical race theory and and the impact that racism and 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 the experimental knowledge and how that all crosses across multiple intersections has huge impact on students in in, in, in public schools in the United States that are more segregated now than they were when my father graduated from high school in 62. So, uh, the, so dismissing this often saying that it's racism and exclusive is all again, a diversion from the fact that you have generation after generation after generation of, of, of students in this country who are not getting the, the depth of education they needed as a result of desegregation, especially in the American South. <clears throat> I want to give our contact information again, and it is, uh, we're on Twitter, so at Noon Edition, you can send us your questions there. You can also send us questions to news at indianapublicmedia.org. We're talking about the uh, the topic of critical race theory and uh, why it's uh, such a volatile topic today and if it's important to teach it in the schools. We have four guests with us, uh, terrific guests from who are spread out, two from IUPUI, Hardy Murphy, clinical professor at IUPUI in the School of Education, and Cleveland Hayes, associate dean of academic affairs at IUPUI. Uh, Constance Elo is with us. She's an associate professor in the Department of Higher Education School in the School of Behavioral and Applied Sciences at Azusa Pacific University in California. Kevin Brown is also with us. He is the Richard S. Melvin Professor of Law at the Maurer School of Law. Um, both uh, Dr. Murphy and Dr. Hayes just talked uh, in a very passionate way about you know, why critical race theory is important and why we need to be teaching lessons um, that are a little bit more, uh, let's say, less narrow, more rounded about what's happened in our culture. Constance Elo, you... Um, focus on culture and and post-secondary education and how the infrastructures um, sort of affect the different um, populations. I I just, I want to get your take on, you know, how, how do we do this? We have in Indiana, for instance, I don't know what it's like in California, but Indiana, uh, the attorney general, Todd Rakita has become the face of opposition to critical race theory. Um, he actually, um, released an open letter that was signed by 19 states attorney attorneys general arguing that critical race theory be banned for um, the Department of Education to stop funding curriculum based on its tenants. Uh, Mr. Rakita also uh, sent out a parent's bill of rights that basically was against teaching critical race theory. He's an attorney general elected by the people of the state of Indiana. When, when you've got this kind of... Um, sort of backlash against it. What, you know, how can we, how do we change the culture? How can we make this um, an appropriate thing to teach? How, do, how can we go about that? I know that's a big question. Uh, yeah, um, it is. Um, but I, I think it's, uh, it's an important one. I guess I would sort of backtrack and um, think about the critical question of do institutions like, you know, K-12 education, higher education, um, do they actually even want to take up that work? Um, What I find actually in a lot of education spaces is that there's this sort of commitment to maybe a more performative um, ideation of issues of justice and equity um, and probably more 
a deflection of the critical questions that can sort of get us to a place where we can think about, oh, how might we reimagine these spaces where it would be um, a healthy environment to, you know, welcome these kinds of conversations. I don't necessarily, I can't really say that I see that. I can't speak enough about different, um, and I'm just kind of talking about the higher education angle at this point, um, really um, without institutions really thinking about what they have to give up um, in order to welcome different frameworks that, you know, maybe position us to really think about, well, what is the sort of history and legacy, you know, of, you know, this land we're on of this nation, you know, what does it mean for issues of racism to not only be a heart issue, but a systemic um, issue as well? Um, universities, you know, schools, they have to give up some of what they are to move in that direction. And I personally don't necessarily see that commitment. I, I think about instructors who, um, have to teach. And again, I'm not even talking about critical race theory classes. I'm just talking about courses that in any way address um, diversity, equity, issues of social justice or injustice, which cannot be conflated again with critical race theory. Um, and many times of which, you know, there are people of color teaching these courses that, you know, deal with all kinds of abuses, harassment, um, lower teaching evaluations, and just not really working in a space that's supportive of that actual um, curriculum. So I think the important inquiry would be to ask institutions, you know, how badly do you really want this? You know, how, to what extent are you going to make this a safe space for people to even engage these dialogue and teach these courses? Because for, you know, in a lot of ways, the message is, you know, you're kind of on your own and people are fighting like these twofold battles, like in the classroom and then also um, within the public imaginary. But I also want to say, too, that um, before we even touch the issue of, again, CRT in these classrooms, courses that address race in general um, are, you know, undergo and experience all types of um, violence. So when I see institutions not readily addressing those dynamics, uh, I, I don't know. I don't know. So it's it's very hard for me to imagine institutions where that can sort of say, well, yeah, of course, we welcome all sorts of things, but sort of absolve themselves of the issues that come with having those sorts of courses um, on their campus and really sort of being very much neglectful of the people that are taking in the real harm of um, being on the front lines of even just diversity courses, you know, being taught. So um, I, again, like I was saying before, I'm very skeptical that, you know, CRT is even being taught um, on most campuses and um, schools, um, not to negate the fact that, you know, it is in, in some spaces um, very much so, but I think it's much less than the public um, is sort of being made to understand at this point. But that being said, um, I actually don't think that most colleges and universities are are, are healthy ecosystems um, for these dialogues to happen. Can they get there? Um, perhaps, but I, I also think that that will take addressing things like you know, the violence, bullying, harassment, mobbing, um, sabotage um, that comes with, you know, those courses being present in that space. And I, I have really yet to see um, those kinds of interrogations happening alongside this discourse, you know, so much cost when it comes to um, racism. And what's sort of ironic about this sort of push to really understand um, the violences of racism is that those, you know, who end up speaking up about, you know, these things or teaching these things are harmed in the process. Um, so I, I don't know. I just sort of imagine ecosystems that are also thoughtful about um, those who will sort of have to be 
left to take up for the mantle for these sorts of things. Um, yeah, I think well, about that. Yeah, let, let me uh, ask you as a follow-up, and then I definitely want to hear Kevin Brown's response to this as well, and and uh, the other two panelists, if they would like. But it, it seems as if uh, in the political arena, critical race theory has sort of been taken as a, maybe sort of a, a code for, you know, we don't want to recognize the flaws of uh, in our history. And we think that everything that we've been teaching seems to be going just fine. And it's a, a certain... Um, political theory that that would or political position that would would mm-hmm. use critical race theory as sort of a you know a rallying cry to say we don't we don't want this even though they maybe don't even understand what it is i guess i want your reaction to that yeah yeah i mean it's a it's an important thought um it brings up a lot of mixed thoughts for me um on one level i think that people can have a so let, let's say that, you know, let's reimagine, oh, so many people are on board with this. I, I'm also knowledgeable of the fact that there are so many people, you know, at this time last year who had in their Amazon cart all these books on racism and injustice. Um, are their hearts sort of changed? Are they checking their privileges? I have no idea. Um, are they, you know, reading, you know, maybe some of the more um, watered down texts um, that, you know, in some ways address issues of race and racism? Sure. So on, on one hand, um, I think about the fact that just sort of like more knowledge about race and racism does not necessarily mean that someone is going to step out into the world and be any less violent or racist. Um or act in ways that are unjust um, to different groups. Um, What I appreciate about this conversation and what's happening with CRT is that people are recognizing, okay, well, it is important to define it and understand, again, its embeddedness in social institutions, um, while also at the same time, I think about the fact that it is also very much a heart issue. I think about um, Eduardo Bonilla Silva, who talked about racism without racists. You know, we we can't kind of just sort of talk about you know, racism, like the weather, oh, it's happening to us, but there's no one who's sort of doing anything. Like the, it's a very real um, thing. So while on one hand, I'm sort of like, okay, um, maybe we're going somewhere with people sort of wrestling about the where, the when, the how of these types of like knowledge bases. I also recognize the fact that I know many people who, you know, are spouting all the facts about racism and um inequities and societies and behind closed doors and in front of other people, you know, are completely abusive and still act in racist ways. So um, I'm just hoping that alongside this conversation, we're sort of thinking about the fact that um, we're talking about society, we're talking about social institutions, but we're also talking about a deep heart issue. Um, What I hear from some people, not a lot of people, is that um, they would like some hope. They would like to believe that maybe, you know, again, if they're wrestling with issues of their own racism, it is possible that maybe they're, they can be less racist. Um, and my, my heart goes out, you know, to them um, because I, I, I think about that. Um, and I, I hope that that's not the takeaway that people are getting because, again, that stems from maybe a flawed understanding of what any particular framework is. Um, but I, I do hope that we also talk about the fact that um, the academy itself is built on all these sort of epistemic ways of violence. And even people who are sort of like saying all the right words or politically correct or know all the books, you know, can very much be purveyors of, you know, the most egregious and violent kinds of racism. So how do we sort of think about this holistically where we sort of center whoa, you know, um, this being a heart issue, this being a society issue, how do we tackle this in all sorts of ways and not just um, relying on knowledge? Because again, um, academia itself is very much um, a product of racism and still very much operates in that way. So looking to academia to be the the hope of rewiring um, 
racism in this country? I I don't know. Um, I, I would have to reimagine that completely. But I just tell that to say that we we just have to think about the the human holistically as we think about this and goodness. Um, I, I know people who have all the books on their bookshelf and n- nothing of them has changed. Um, but I also hear people that are hoping that, oh, you know, I hope I can be less racist than I have been or not be racist anymore. You know, what would that look like? Um, and I also hear people who are tired of having to educate or um, center um, what sort of happened to them. But thinking that any class is going to be the end all be all of that transformation um, is concerning to me. Um, that being said, um the ire and anger that these courses are receiving, I think is concerning as well. Kevin Brown, go ahead. I... Yeah, yeah. I, 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 so I, I want to jump in for, for just a minute, and I want to try to make this a little simpler than, than that. I, I agree there are really institutional problems that have to be worked out in academia and a lot of other art institutions. But let me just take a really pretty simple point that I always make in the race and law class that I teach to try to demonstrate what I would see was, it would be a different perspective from critical race theory from the normal. I would take the abolition of slavery. Now, the typical story of the abolition of slavery is effectively that the Northerners just simply decided that they could not take this egregious moral institution, uh, got into a civil war, eventually the Civil War led to the abolition of slavery and the Northerners should be thanked for it. And indeed, black people should be thanked for having been liberated by the North. When I teach the Civil War, though, I teach it totally different. I start by pointing out the fact that 85%, 85% of eligible black males in the North fought in the Civil War on the side of the North. That 10% of the North war casualties killed in action were black troops. That by the end of the war, 14%, one in eight, of the Union Army was black. 25% of the Union Navy was black. Both Abraham Lincoln and Ulysses S. Grant are going to say, without the black troops, we could not have won the war. Now, that's a different telling of the Civil War, but it's also an accurate telling of the Civil War. But from that telling of the Civil War, now it's not about how black people were sort of hanging around on the plantations waiting to be liberated by the northern troops. Rather, it is that when government of the people, by the people, and for the people was prepared to perish, it's the black troops that came in and saved them. So that the Union itself owes the debt to those black troops. So that creates a totally different understanding of who African Americans are, how central they've been to our country, and the traditional story. And, and, and so that I would see as a critical race theory perspective. The other point that I would make, and I think this is a critical point too, because we desegregated academia, we brought in a ton of black scholars and people of color who started looking at history from a different point of view and understood it in different ways. So that effectively today, we know more about what the black community in the United States has done than we've known at any point in time in our history. And as we move further and further into the future, more and more that information is going to come out. But if instead I were trying to talk to a white audience, I would specifically know under the age of 16, a majority of Americans are minorities. We know that minorities know how to interact with whites because so much of white culture is in America and we encounter it on a daily basis. It is not all clear that many whites can interact with minorities. So as these 16-year-olds grow up, if they cannot interact with minorities, they are literally cutting out half of the American population. Add to that globalization and the fact that globalization is bringing you more and more into contact with people from different points of view and different cultures means if you cannot become culturally literate in multiple cultures, you're going to have a very difficult time in the future. 
All right. We have about 10 minutes to go, and I this is probably a, a logical follow-up to that. I think Hardy Murphy has something that he wants to say, and I, I want to frame it by you know, talking a little bit about education today, K through 12 and higher education, and what, you know, what um, an appropriate kind of teaching of history would look like. But uh, Dr. Murphy, go ahead. Yeah, Bob, you know, as, as a former superintendent, I think it's important for people to know <clears throat> that, you know, superintendents serve at the, uh, at the pleasure of their communities. Uh, the communities have schools, and the schools have a curriculum, and the curriculum is determined by the standards of the state, which makes it a governmental and a political process. When you look at the way that curriculum is taught in the standards, they frame a foundation of opportunity that is represented now in an opportunity gap. You asked earlier, or one of the listeners did, about how a narrow teaching of the curriculum affects, I believe, a student's opportunity. When you understand that the opportunity gap, its foundation is defined by stereotypes. The stereotypes evolve from history. Students are studying a history that is not represented accurately, so they, in fact, are internalized the values and beliefs that create the stereotypes. If we don't change that, then the foundations of the opportunity gap don't change. However, to change that with an accurate representation of history, for instance, when you look at the Civil War and Reconstruction Standard in the Indiana State Standards, it says, describe the policies, practices, and consequences of Reconstruction. To do that accurately, you're going to have to address how the facts have been misrepresented to create these stereotypes. And once these stereotypes change, the opportunity structure changes. For some, that's threatening. For many parents in our community, that's threatening. For superintendents, they have to lead that change while at the same time trying to stay in their seat. And that is very difficult indeed. Dr. Hayes, um, how would you like to see this issue go forward? Well, I want to add that as someone who spent 12 years in the classroom, CRT and the iteration of which is being presented in um, in, the, in the in the media and these PowerPoint slides that I've just reviewed doesn't exist. It's not. It, it, it just it just just it just doesn't. What I would like to see, and I talk about this with my in-service teachers, pre-service teachers, is that. If you're going to increase, if we're all around this notion around achievement and standardized testing, all these kinds of things, um, to way to do that is that you have to bring in the experiential knowledge of students. And you don't, you as a white person, for example, have nothing to lose. You lose nothing by recognizing the humanity and the experiences that other that, that children bring to school. Um, and if it's framed in CRT, fine, we can frame it in CRT, but you can do all those things and see the, 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 the three letters CRT never have to come up in conversation. So that's what I would like to see is schools, and it's just good teaching. If I was teaching in rural Indiana and most of my students are white and farmers, and wouldn't it make most, it wouldn't it make sense for me to talk about things that they, in my, in my science class, talk about things that they know about and can relate to and connect to the curriculum to have much more connected to school and understanding school and et cetera. So at the end of the day, it's not a, you know, again, it's all, this is all, this all this is just made up. It's just creating a book of air and, and, and start looking, you know, I think people start need to, you know, unhook themselves from that. It's not about you. It's really at the end of the day about, Increasing the academic achievement of children, regardless of what they look like phenotypically. So, to follow along, we did have a question about uh, just asking if any of you were surprised at to see the rise of CRT in the news and in public dialogue. So, uh, Dr. Hayes, you know, you, you say it's it's you know it's really kind of a fiction. Do you see it as just a, a political? Um, strategy it, it is it's made up it's it's you know we always you, you know there's always something that people got to get all been out of shape about around one thing or the other and right now um after 
um, George Floyd's murder, we were on COVID too. And so people were at home and they were locked down and they were at home and all we could do was watch TV. And we watched that over and over and over. And then we start, you know, we, we, then we start having this performative um, notion. And then um, there's always got to be something that people get upset about. And I, you know, and my next question would be, will be, what would be the next thing? And so uh, I think people are afraid, and somebody mentioned this around 16-year-olds that have very, very limited experience around with people of color, et cetera, but they're going to colleges and universities now, and they're realizing, oh, these kids, these students are realizing, oh, my parents have lied to me about this group, and then they're going back home, and they're pushing back on their, this is at the university level, and pushing back on their parents. They hear my students talk about it all the time, and their parents and their parents are not liking this. So let's create again. Let's create a situation where we can we can stop this. And you can look at it historically that it has happened. All you know, just pick up a history book. And it, in these kinds of behavior, these kinds of responses um, to black success, black joy, happened has happened. And every and as Dr. Brown has said that when you have when black success or I'm paraphrasing what he said when you have as black people are starting to share these experiences, people are realizing, oh, we, we, we've messed up. We have one minute to go. I want to ask, and I, I guess, Kevin Brown, you can jump in first. Uh, another question is now that that term has been politicized, how do we move forward? Do we just have to fight against use of critical race theory as a term or make sure that we define it properly? Yeah, I, I have to say is, is for the original founders of critical race theory, which comes out of law, I've been really kind of shocked that this has become a debate within uh, schools talking about their curriculum. It, it seems to me that the word multiculturalism, which was a very big deal in the 1980s, indeed, to a certain extent, preceded critical race theory was a movement in, in public schools that just didn't go far enough, but I think you can accomplish all of the kind of learning that would come from critical race theory under the rubric of a concept like multiculturalism, which admittedly in its time created a tremendous initial backlog of where things changed and it became more acceptable. All right. I'm going to have to stop our conversation now because we have run out of time. I want to thank our four guests. It's been a great conversation, and thank you all for being here. Hardy Murphy, clinical professor at the IUPUI School of Education. Constance Elo, an associate professor at the uh, at Azusa Pacific University. Cleveland Hayes, associate dean of academic affairs at IUPUI. And Kevin Brown, a professor of law at the Maurer School of Law. For our producer, Benta Boutier, engineer John Bailey. I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville. Fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Integrity First Insurance, provider of Erie Insurance for all your auto, home, life, and business insurance needs. More information at 812-269-8897 or IntegrityFirstInsuranceServices.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation.